Podcasting from the local ramen restaurant. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by Buddy Build. I remember having a conversation with one of our co-hosts about the Jenkins setup they have for their build server and all of the issues that they had getting it set up, getting it running, and then it stopped working. Why not just go with something that just works? Buddy Build is a solution that provides continuous integration and delivery for your iOS apps. If you're looking for a way to get your tests running, your continuous integration running, and have your app delivered, then check out Buddy Build. For a free trial, go to devchat.tv slash buddy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 166 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. Alondo Brewington. Hello from Prague. Caleb Hicks. Hi, everyone. I'm in Lehigh today in Utah. Me too. Lane Mosley. I'm also in Lehigh. Wow. Lehigh Party. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week we have a special guest, and that's Natasha Murashev. And I'm sure I said that wrong. That's good. Uh, hello from New York. You want to give us a brief introduction? You haven't been on for a while. Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Natasha. I'm known on the internets as Natasha the Robot. I do a popular Swift newsletter called This Week in Swift. Uh, and I also run a Swift conference called Try Swift. And the next one is in New York in September. Awesome. I'm also yeah, a digital nomad, so I travel and work from anywhere. Currently in New York, as you heard. That sounds like I completely endorse that lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> so we brought you on today to talk about protocol-oriented programming. And, you know, I looked through your slides and things. I couldn't actually get the talk to load, like the video. So I'm not sure I completely follow what it is. Do you want to give us a brief introduction? Uh, sure. So uh, protocols have been around for a while in Objective-C or just iOS development. So, for example, you know, like table views or collection views, you implement them uh, as protocols in the Cocoa API. But with Swift, uh, protocols have taken kind of like a whole other level <laughs> that we haven't before. In fact, in a WWDC session in 2015 about uh, protocol-oriented programming, uh, one of the Swift team members mentioned that Swift is a protocol-oriented language. Um, so instead of thinking object-oriented language like we did with Objective-C, we're supposed to be thinking protocol-oriented language. So, you know, with Swift, kind of protocols are taken to the next level with protocol extensions where you can have default implementations of methods um, and you can have associated types, with, which is a type of generics in the protocol. So they're a lot more powerful and we have to kind of do a mind shift to think in protocols instead of subclassing, for example. Natasha, can you talk about sort of the way that protocols were used prior to this sort of new vision of their use in Swift 
and how we would have used them in Objective-C to sort of set us up for this journey that we're going to take. Sure. Uh, so if you think about implementing a UI table view, your view controller has to, or a data source, uh, have to conform to, you know, UI table view uh, data source, for example, which tells Apple Framework how many columns you have, how many sections you have. Um, so we've had the basic construct. The difference now is that we have protocol extensions, and with protocol extensions, we can set defaults. Let's say by default, the number of sections is one. Uh, so now we can use the protocols instead of subclassing because we can have default implementations for them. And we can have more mix-in uh, functionality like there is in Ruby, for example. So essentially, this is giving us a way in order to sort of save on the amount of redundant code that we might have to have for different classes that we're using the extension before. Is that correct? Yeah. In a lot of cases, you wouldn't need subclassing. You can just use protocols with default implementations for things. And now instead of subclassing, because you can't subclass the value type, for example, you can just have it conform to a protocol and it'll sort of inherit, right? It'll be as similar to inheriting the behavior. But now you can use more composition versus inheritance because you can have the same class conform to multiple protocols. So you don't have to have, you know, 10 levels of subclassing. For example, in game development, where you can have a monster, and then you can have a shooting monster, and maybe now I don't really play games, but... <laughs> a shooting yeah, but... monster with a machine gun. Yeah, machine gun, then you have, you know, an arrow or something, and you might have some kind of strong hierarchy, but then, you know, maybe a castle can have a gun on it also, so now it can shoot, and then, then you end up having spaghetti code, because now you have random subclasses, and then maybe some method that you have in one subclass doesn't quite fit into another subclass. So with protocols, you can take the, you know, shooting behavior out to a protocol and now like a castle or a monster can shoot or they can have an arrow or they have, can have like invisible cloak. So it's, it makes your code a lot more composable. So the benefit of composability is avoiding the nest of object trees and structures that I think anyone who's dealt with a large enough project in an O language has done and shot themselves right in the foot doing all the things that you you mentioned, trying to subclass everything and yeah. keep track of it because there's tons of complexity and it's really hard to map that off with a strict inheritance thing. But with the protocols, you don't have to conform to every little part of it. It can just be one thing. So you can have a shoots arrows, shoots flame. Yeah, exactly. So have and then, you know, when you start out with subclassing, you have a clear model in mind. So in theory, it always sounds good because <laughs> you're like obviously it's just you know a shooting monster so then you you start subclassing but then it usually ends up in the in real world just becoming really messy but yeah protocols kind of have a flat structure but you can take it out um, and remove them or add them to anything as needed i'm curious before we get too much further into uh some of this is that does uh, protocol-oriented programming give you other benefits besides just a clean way of sharing behavior? I mean, are there other use cases for it, or is this specifically and only what it's used for? I mean, I think it's just a tool, so <laughs> it could be used for many things. Uh, if you use, you know, protocols, in some cases it could be used, uh, that's in one of the examples in my talk, but it could be used as 
a way to kind of clean up UI kit, for example. So for segue identifiers, there's a lot of uh, string based, you know, requirements in UI kit. Like for segue identifier, it should be a string. So you can kind of use protocols to also abstract away um, some of the ugliness of UI kit, for example. Are there any benefits with regard to testing when using uh, a protocol oriented approach? It could be. I think it's just, obviously, you can use anything for bad <laughs> or even write bad code with any tool. But one thing with protocols is, uh, again, like in Swift, we're supposed to be using value types instead of reference types or classes. So with structs, you can't subclass them, but you can have them in a test conform to, a, you can have, you know, a fake version of a struct and you can have it. Instead of subclassing it, you can have it conform to the same protocol as the original struct. So you can use it to add fake objects without subclassing. But yeah, if you write cleaner code, then you'll have better tests, right? Or vice versa. If you can write testing first, <laughs> you can write cleaner code. One thing that I saw in the slides was that it seemed like the Swift had a bigger focus on protocols than Objective-C. So, you know, you mentioned... We already had this in Objective-C, and we've talked about some of that. But how is Swift different, and how does that promote the use of protocol-oriented? The biggest thing is uh, in Swift, value types are encouraged. We have enums and structs, which are a lot more powerful in Swift than in Objective-C. Uh, so when you're using value types, those cannot be subclassed. So protocols are basically, I wouldn't say a replacement, but they're a way around the problem that you can't subclass a struct. So if you're using value types, it, protocols will be a lot more natural in Swift. But I had the opposite happen when I started Swift. I didn't really think about it much, right? So I was just writing Objective-C code in Swift, and I was writing all classes. And then I was like, oh, I'm supposed to write. Someone told me I'm supposed to do value types more. So I, I would do value types. And then I'm like, I can't subclass this. So protocols are the solution to that. And with protocol extensions and associated types, that, that gives us the power to use value types a lot more, which makes for safer code in general. Are there any downsides or pitfalls when using protocols? Any situations you've run into where protocol-oriented programming just doesn't really work well? Well, the main one is just a limitation of the current version of Swift. Um, but I don't know if you worked with protocols with associated types. So that's a way to do generics with protocols. And they don't work as you expect. So you can't just have a variable and say it just conforms to this protocol. Um, you have to, like, the compiler will give you errors. You can't have an array of all objects that conform to a certain protocol unless you use type erasure, which is a lot more complicated. So um, I know the Swift team and the, there's a evolution proposal already in review to make it a lot better, but it's a very complicated problem. So when you're using it for the first time and you don't know about this, then it's just not going to behave the way you want it to, right? Like if you use it naturally, just in place of subclassing, then you're like, I can have an array of all objects that perform to a protocol. But then the compiler will give you an error, and it's very unintuitive why it doesn't work. Another problem I've run into in Swift with protocols that has kind of frustrated me is something that actually works in Objective-C, which is it doesn't seem like there's an easy way to say that you want, for example, a property to be a certain class or you know or type that also conforms to a protocol. So you can't have a property that is a UI view controller that conforms to such and such protocol. 
can say you want an object that conforms to that protocol, or a UIV controller, but not both. And you could do that in Objective-C. Have you run into that? Is there sort of a workaround that you found that works well? Or is it a problem that I shouldn't be hitting into because I'm really just doing something wrong? Yeah, I haven't run into that. Uh, you, one thing is uh, with protocol extensions, you could constrain them to a certain type. So you can say this extension or these methods in this extension only apply to anything that's UI view. So that's a little bit backwards, but you can have yeah, functions that only are constrained to a certain type. Right. Well, that's something I, that, that's sort of the other way around, but it's mm -hmm. hit me a few times and I sort of feel like I must be missing something because nobody else talks about it. But that's actually a pattern I used in Objective-C fairly often, you know, where it have UI view controller and then constrained to a protocol and then it can be any kind of UI view controller, but it just has to be a UI can view you controller. Try, can you try it? It works with a where clause. So you can just say, oh, where, say where something conforms to a protocol. I actually hadn't thought about that. That's something I'll have to try. Oh, okay. Yeah, you should be able to do it. It, it might be complicated with chance. So you talked a little bit about associated types and type erasure. And if you're trying to do generics and you come from a C-sharp or Java background and you expect Swift generics to work like they do in those languages, you're going to run across these terms very quickly because it doesn't work like you're expecting. What are these things? What are, what are associated types? What are type erasure? How do we, how do, we do them? Uh, sure. So associated types is uh, when you have a protocol. So you can have maybe like a Pokemon. Uh, you guys were mentioning Pokemon Go. Um, and that can have, you know, an attack function. And when it attacks, it returns whatever the powers, the different Pokemons. It could be lightning, it could be rain, or just water, or whatever the other attack options are. But because it's a protocol, you don't know what that return type is, but you do want all Pokemon to have the power to attack. So instead of saying what the power is that it, the attack returns, uh, you can have an associated types, or you know, this is a type of generic that says that it can whoever implements this protocol will uh, specify what type of object it returns. Uh, so. You know, like a Pikachu would return lightning, but it's up to when Pikachu conforms to the Pokemon protocol, it implements the attack method and it's going to return the lightning. But the protocol itself does not commit to a type. The problem is if you want to have an array of, you know, Pokemons, which are all protocols, you can't. <laughs> and you will in the future with Swift, but currently it'll give you an error that says it doesn't know what type it is. So type erasure is kind of like a complicated thing, but <laughs> I don't even know if I can explain it. But uh, you basically uh, wrap the Pokemon into like an any object type. You pass in the Pokemon and you have that object, that new kind of fake object or like a generic object conform to that protocol, but you pass in the actual Pikachu in and now you can save its attack function or anything else that conforms to the protocol. And now you can have an array of any objects that conform to the Pokemon protocol. So it's kind of a way to get around the constraint of not being able to have an array of Pokemons. You just wrap them in an object and now you can have it. So once yeah, they fix that in Swift 3, that probably won't be necessary, right? Yes, so hopefully. 
<laughs> because it yes. seems kind of dangerous. Yeah, it's, right. right? <laughs> it's not. Yeah, it's not. Uh, there was a talk uh, that my friend gave at all conf, and everyone was like, "Okay, I kind of get it," but like, you know, how to explain that to a junior developer or just any developer? <laughs> so, and it's very boilerplate code. Um, so it's definitely not something we want to learn for such a intuitive thing, but yes, it should be just, you can have an array of Pokemon if you want, and you can go through them and have a like, you know, multi-attack. Yeah, I saw that talk at AllConf, and I was excited because I didn't really know what type erasure was. And after I saw it, I understood the talk, and I'm like, oh, that's the ugly hack I had to do to get generics to work like in Swift. So is, are, is type erasure coming in Swift 3? I've heard mixed reviews, or mixed things. I've heard that it was like pushed off. Do you know? I'm not sure if in Swift, I know there's a proposal and it was accepted, so I'm guessing it's Swift 3, but it is a complicated implementation. That's why they haven't done it till now, uh, so I can't verify it. Okay, so it's coming. We're just, we're just not sure mm -hmm. when. But no, yes. it'll be nice to be able to use generics in a, yes. a reasonable <laughs> fashion. So is so there a particular strategy you recommend for keeping your code clean when you want You've, you've added a default implementation to your protocol, uh, but in one of the classes that's adopting that protocol, you want to add something to the default implementation. So you want to keep that default implementation, but add to it. Uh, so one thing about the default implementation, you can choose not to expose it as part of the protocol, uh, and then nothing can override it. <laughs> so they explain that in the WWC session. But yeah, if it is available in the protocol declaration, then anything can override it. So you haven't come across a strategy you like for using the default implementation, but also adding to it in that same function, almost like, you know, a, I personally a super use, muted load or something like that. Yeah, I personally just use the default implementation without actually exposing it to the whole protocol. So usually, because I, I think it'll be too dirty if you have a random default <laughs> implementation. So for me, a default implementation is just something that everyone can use, and it's boilerplate code. So for example, if you want the view to shake, you can have a shakeable protocol, and then you'll have a function for constraining to all the views that have a shake function. And you know, shaking is the same across it. If you want to control how much it shakes, like by uh, how many pixels, then you would pass that in as a parameter and that'll apply. But I don't know, I'm not a fan of creating, you know, just those default implementations just for the sake of it. I try <laughs> I try to make sure that they're actually going to be used um, and not, if they're going to be overwritten by everything, then you should just have it as a protocol function, not a default implementation. Because then in that case, it'll be confusing because... People would be like, oh, am I supposed to override this? I think like in Java, there's inheritance or sorry, uh, interface. And then some functions you have to say, you know, make fatal error, make sure to implement this. You know, that's not, I don't think where we want to be. <laughs> so I recommend making the default really the default. And if it can't be a default, then don't make it, just make it a protocol function that every, everything has to implement. I agree 100%, Caleb. If you do a default protocol implementation and try and override it in a class that implements a protocol, you're going to run into a bug. So hair, 
hair raising and scary, you will turn off your computer and walk away for three days. <laughs> it's, it's, one, it's one of my one of my picks. It's the Swift bugs of wait, hold on, the ghost of Swift bugs future, which talks about a really nasty bug. Um, if you try and mix uh, regular inheritance with uh, protocol extensions, so don't do it. Stick with what Natasha is saying. Keep your default implementations something that's simple that everyone's going to use. If you need to mix and match things like that, take a different approach. Yeah, I'll third that. that. I've hit into that same problem, and it was horrible. I've only uh, briefly done some protocol-oriented programming in a project that I was designing for some students and ran across a case where I wanted everything in the default implementation, but also wanted to add some stuff to it. But I agree with what both Natasha and, and Jane and, and Andrew, what all of you have said. So that's that's great. Thank you. Is, is there some way you can like mark it as final or something so that no one can mess with it? Yeah, that's just by not putting it in the protocol declaration. So if you have a shake function in the extension, but not in the actual protocol, then nothing can implement it. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. That's great. Yeah, the trouble is how it's dispatched with the protocol extension. It's it's static. With classes, it's a little more dynamic. And they, they mix and match in ways that are not obvious at all. Interesting. It's, don't, I don't want to go into the weeds. With the, I have a blog post. That's one of my picks that explains this bug. And it took me three times of reading it before I understood what, what was happening. But when I ran across the problem, I knew what was going on. So it will save you some time. I have a question about sort of uh, a little more general. So if, once you start taking this protocol-oriented approach, does it change sort of the architecture of your apps um, substantially? Uh, so one thing... I mentioned this using value types. And, and again, if you're just using it and you're writing classes, then it's just a tool. So <laughs> you can write everything else like you did in Objective-C and just use protocols, and it probably wouldn't change. But it's just putting the whole package together, right? So are you using structs instead of classes? Then you're going to be using protocols a lot more naturally. So just kind of one tool in everything. You know, there might be ways to use more functional code also in Swift. So it's just how you use it. So Apple's given clear direction to use a lot more structs than classes. Have you gone that direction? Are you on board with it? Are there areas where classes make sense? Uh, so the only place for me that uh, classes make sense are within Apple's own frameworks. So <laughs> most of the frameworks require you to subclass. So anything in UIKit, you have to subclass from UIB controller. Anything, even there's a lot of places where you have to subclass from NS object to even conform to a protocol. So anywhere where the framework makes you subclass, like I don't believe in fighting the framework. Uh, so just go with it. But there is a way to extract as much logic as possible and put it into structs and to minimize the kind of damage of having shared state. In, in some cases, you do want shared state, and so you would use the classes. But most of the time, if I have clear, you know, isolating lo logic or object that I can move away from Apple's frameworks restrictions, then I do that. I just create a new object or a new protocol or a view, new view model. So, for example, a UI view controller, you have to subclass. But the logic that's behind what is displayed can be extracted into a view model, which is a struct that might conform to protocols. So as much as possible, use structs, but that's not possible <laughs> within Apple's own framework. So in that case, you just go with the framework. Okay, so you're saying if Apple makes you do it, create a class, otherwise structs. Yes. 
And is the main benefit of that just the shared state and mutability, or are there you know other things? Well, the shared state is from reference types. Uh, so when you pass around a class, if something else changes, a variable in that class, then everything that's holding on to that class will be changed. But with structs, you're just passing copies around. Uh, so it's a lot more logically sound in terms of, you know, that it's a clean copy, you can change it, but it's not going to modify every single thing that it touches. So just a way to write more, more clean code. But of course, there, we have applications and we do need state. So the key is, uh, we do need state. We might, you might have some kind of singleton because you need to, but, you know, try to minimize the state and isolate it as much as possible. So you have the most control and understanding of what is actually holding state and what is actually could be isolated into its own object that's inert, right? Uh, structs are dead, right? Once you create them, you can't change them unless they're referring to a reference type, but that's like a more complicated situation. So it seems that, you know, using structs and enums is really for your own protection, you know, as a programmer. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because we can't, we can't, we don't want to trust, you know, where things are coming from. If copies are being shuffled around, you know, you don't really care where it came from. And that makes it a lot easier to do your job. Mm -hmm. Yes. So what are some examples of code that we can look at to see examples of you know, protocol-oriented programming? You can probably watch my talk because I tried to give, you know, live or like really practical examples, but also from WWDC in 2015, the talk on protocol-oriented programming. Uh, the other good talk is about, I think also from 2015 on Swift design, and they talk about fixing, you know, Segway identifiers using protocols and making them more Swifty. Uh, so that's a really good talk as well. I'm sure there's just really good libraries as well if you just look on GitHub and look for Swifty libraries. But one thing I do look for in on GitHub when there's new libraries, you know, I look for is the implementation that I can conform to a protocol or do I have to subclass something? If I have to subclass something, then, you know, I, I'm going to question the library because it's it's not done as Swifty. And one good example of this could be you might want a subclass UI text field, and there might be a great library that maybe shows you, um, maybe makes your field shake, right, when the wrong answer is done or validates your logic or something. Well, if I subclass it, I can't use another great library that like highlights my field or something or makes it a different color or styles it. So that's what, when you look at those libraries, that's something to look for. And if they are made in a way where you conform to a protocol, that's a good library to look at for the code. Okay, you third-party developers. If you're using subclassing, Tosh <laughs> is not letting you in this week in Swift. <laughs> this should be more strict, yeah. <laughs> She's going to make her own list of libraries called no-no-pods. <laughs> I wonder if, if any of the stuff we've talked about is going to change majorly with Swift 3. Are there new features or changes that are coming that are going to kind of... I mean, because like Swift 2, which added protocol extensions, that was a huge thing that made protocols much cooler. Is there anything similar coming in Swift 3? Uh, the big thing in Swift 3 is just the grand renaming. So... <laughs> Uh, I don't think there's anything that's like specifically around protocols. There is around uh, more privacy controls for files. Uh, so I think there's now like a final and an open. So if you're writing and 
uh, framework, you can be more strict about what's accessible to the outside. But I think a lot of it is just kind of cleaning up and renaming things and making it more consistent. Well, yeah, this grand renaming, I'm glad we're getting it out of the way because I'm excited for mm-hmm. Swift to stop changing so terribly much. <laughs> so since the last time you were on it, you started a new endeavor. You've been organizing conferences. So you had one in Tokyo and you've got another one coming up. Can you tell us a little bit more about the conference? Uh, sure. It's really fun. <laughs> so um, I went to visit Tokyo, I think, probably a year and a half ago, and I liked it, and I liked Swift. Uh, and I've talked to a lot of other conference speakers because I, I speak at a lot of conferences, and they were like, welcome to Tokyo if you organize a conference, or if there is a conference. So at some point, I just decided to make one happen. Uh, and it worked out really well. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> there were 500 people from all over the world. I think 100 or like 30 students who flew in from the Philippines. There were people from you know, Australia, Ukraine, Russia, the U.S. It, it went pretty big. And I had a lot of fun. Uh, I've never thought of myself as like someone who'd want to organize a conference. But it was really, really fun. <laughs> so... And I like to travel, so it kind of combines uh, my passion for travel and bringing people together from all over the world and building communities and Swifts. <laughs> so it's worked out really well. And yeah, when I finished the Tokyo conference, I thought it'd be cool to do one in New York because it is, again, one of the big things about Tokyo was everyone wanted to come there. And part of it was being part of the city and being in pulse with the city. So I thought New York has a similar pull to it. Uh, and there aren't really any iOS conferences here. There's a big community. There's a lot of meetups, um, but not as many iOS conferences. So uh, why not? <laughs> but we're going to have, I think, 23 speakers uh, from all over the world again. Uh, and they're really good developers uh, that talk about Swift and iOS development. Uh, and... There's some wildcard, more fun talks like design. And we're going to have airplane mode from uh, Dave Wiskus. They're going to do a party and there might be glow sticks. <laughs> so it's just like a really big Swift event. Uh, it's on uh, September 1st and 2nd. Awesome. I was wondering if I would be in the United States at the time, and I think I will be. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Are you going to do another one in Tokyo? I hope you do. I just I didn't get to go this time, but oh, I yeah, am yeah. committed to going if you do it again. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah, I like to plan, you know, one conference at a time. So <laughs> doing the New York one, and then think about the next one. Yeah, no, Tokyo will be a lot of fun, and I, I know everyone wants us to do it. And the funny thing is, last year at the conference, I mentioned to the speakers that, you know, when they speak culturally, they have to use exam- examples that would be pretty neutral. And basically, everyone used Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> not surprised. <laughs> because, yeah, just like regular things might not translate well culturally to, you know, Japanese uh, members. So it was just really funny because people were just, it was a joke. And all the Japanese attendees were like, why why is everyone obsessed with Pokemon? (laughs) But I think now with Pokemon Go, uh, we can make the conference even more popular. Someone actually designed a logo for a conference with the Pokemon ball and like the Swift logo in there. (laughs) You got to catch them all, right? Yep. Yeah, it's uh, coming to Tokyo next, I think next week. 
Very cool. Well, before we get to picks, uh, do you want to let people know anything else you're working on or how to follow you on Twitter or anything like that? Uh, sure. Online, I'm Natasha the Robot for anything Swift. Uh, and that's NatashaTheRobot.com or at NatashaTheRobot on Twitter. I do have another Twitter for my travel or digital nomad personality, and that's called Natasha the Nomad. <laughs> also, if you do want to come to the conference, I do have a discount code. If you use the discount code IFREAKS100, you'll get $100 off. And it is, we only, we don't have that many tickets, so get the tickets fast. <laughs> I think that's it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Alondo, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Uh, my first pick is not technical. And like Natasha, I am also a digital nomad. I've been traveling since February 1st of this year. And I have already gone through a couple of backpacks. And I realized that uh, I violated one simple rule that you get what you pay for. And what I did learn both from fellow remotes is to settle on a bag that could take the pounding of multiple hikes and side trips in addition to the daily use of going in and out of workspaces. One of the bags that's constantly being recommended is uh, the North Face Surge Transit Backpack, which is what I'm currently using. I picked it up recently after destroying my last one in London, and it is really, really uh, a tough uh, backpack. It's, it's held up really well, and I've seen it hold up for other people as well over the course of this year. So that's my first pick. My second pick, actually, is... Um, a talk that Andy Matusak gave on refactoring the mega controller. And I found it after watching Natasha's protocol oriented MVVM talk. Um, I started referencing some of the other talks that she was uh, referencing and I came across this talk and it really kind of helped me to rethink not only in terms of just using Swift, which I'm really adopting at this point, but also just sort of thinking about making my controllers really just do one thing and as well as thinking about some of the other components that are a part of an application and where they should go and how they should be architected. So it's helping out quite a bit. And those are my two picks. All right, Lane, what are your picks? My first, which is non-technical, but I've been totally into this book called The Well of Ascension, which is book two of Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson. If you like fantasy, it's fantastic. And then my second pick, also non-technical, is where Alondo is, Prague. Prague is a wonderful place. I would go back anytime. I lived there for a couple months, and I totally dig it. So super jealous that you're over there right now. I second that pick. It is awesome. <laughs> right, Caleb, what are your picks? So I've got two. Uh, they're both actually keyboards. So I started getting some RSI issues a few months back, and well, actually about a year ago, and uh, first started using the Microsoft Sculpt ergonomic keyboard. So strongly recommend that. And it, it helped quite a bit with forcing me to type the way that I should be typing. But if you are a little bit of a keyboard nerd and you want the major clickiness, uh, which you may have heard earlier in this podcast because of my poor recording setup, I also recommend the ErgoDocs, which is actually a keyboard that you, when you order it, you get sent a box of parts and you get to solder it together and, and put all the pieces together and buy keycaps that you want it to look like. And I've been using that recently and had to relearn how to type, but it's a fun split ergonomic mechanical clicky keyboard. So links for both of those will be in the notes. Cool. Andrew, what are your picks? Got two picks as well. Uh, my first one is uh, an article that I tweeted about i think it was on hacker news yesterday but i just loved it it's a report by a couple of guys who built a core memory shield for arduino 
core memory was what was used for RAM before transistors were a thing and, you know, integrated circuits. You could have a memory that was on an integrated circuit. I don't know. I just think it's it's old and, of course, obsolete, but it's this really elegant, cool, and actually fundamentally simple thing that they built themselves and got working. It's only 32 bits of RAM, but they did a great paper all about how magnetic core memory works and how they, how they got it to work for on Arduino. Anyway, it was really cool, and I loved it. My second pick is an app that I have been wanting to make for a, a little while and probably never would get to, and I just found out somebody else already made it, so I'm really happy, and it's called Rocket. It's a Mac app that basically gives you the Slack emoji shortcuts in any app on your Mac. So when you're typing, instead of having to bring up the emoji picker and find the one you want, you can just type like colon, whatever, colon, rocket, colon, give you the rocket emoji. So I just downloaded it, but I'm already enjoying it a lot. And uh, those are my picks. Cool. Jane, what are your picks? All right. I've got two picks. One I talked about earlier when we talked about protocol extensions. It's the ghost of Swift Bugs Future. you Thinking about mixing and matching protocol extensions with classes, uh, read this first. It will scare you away from that line of thinking. Uh, second one, I just want to piggyback on Natasha recommended the type erasure talk by Hector Matos. And by the time we launched this, it may be online. It was at AllConf 2016. And the type talk is type erasure magic. So if you want to know more about associated types and type erasure, what those things are, it's a good talk that shows the technique of making it happen. Those are my picks. All right. Uh, I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. The first one is a book that I read last week. I actually listened to it on Audible. It is called How to Stay Motivated by Zig Ziglar. And Zig Ziglar is one of these legendary motivational speakers. And he talks a lot about a lot of things, including how to do well in business, how to sell. He also talks about just how to live better. He talks about marriage. He talk, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And uh, this one is how to stay motivated. And he talks not just about sort of how to pump yourself up so you can get stuff done, but it really is about what kind of life do you want to lead and how do you get motivated around that? And how do you think about yourself? How do you think about the world? How do you think about other people? How do you think about the other projects that you have in your life? And how do those fit in with the life you want? And then how do you use that to drive yourself to be motivated to make the changes necessary to get that stuff done? And it is excellent. So uh, I highly recommend it. I actually have a goal to listen to all of this stuff by Zig Ziglar on Audible by the end of the year. And so I'm working through that right now. Currently actually reading his book, See You at the Top. No, Over the Top. I'm reading Over the Top, and I'm listening to a few other audio programs that they have on Audible. They have most of his, basically, tapes on Audible now, and you can listen to those. And they are tremendous. And it's funny because there are a lot of things, a lot of practices that you can get into from them. But overall, generally, just the outlook on life and the way that he explains certain things and the way that I've changed my thinking about some of the things that I'm doing have made a positive difference in my life, even though I probably can't point to a single one that has accounted for the majority of that positive change. But anyway, I'm going on and on about Zig, and I just love it. So yeah, so those are my picks. Natasha, what are your picks? I think my favorite WWDC 2016 session is the Understanding Swift Performance. So if you do watch one talk, I highly recommend that one. And it really helps to understand what makes your code more performant, but also understanding how Swift works and how value types and reference types work and how they work in combination as well. And for the book, I'm currently reading a book called Win the Crowd. And it's by a magician who like 
I think like a million dollar magician. He only has million dollar clients or billion dollar clients. Uh, so it's a little over the top, but it's actually really good tips for public speaking um, and how to become a better speaker. And I think, yeah, he mentions that everywhere you go is a stage. So just how to present yourself better in, I think, all situations. And finally, I'm going to talk about my one big thing. Uh, when I travel and I go to a city, I, I also work, so I can't do every single thing. So I usually have, you know, one big goal for my trip. And uh, the one big goal for my New York trip was eating rainbow bagels from, from Brooklyn. And I finally got to go last weekend. And it was just really phenomenal. This guy is a rainbow, uh, is a bagel artist. So he can create these beautiful bagels that are all, all different colors. And there's like cotton candy on it and this like funfetti cream cheese and there's fairy dust, which are like little stars. And it's like eating a cake and really exciting. So if you do visit New York, I highly recommend going out to Brooklyn and getting rainbow bagels. That's it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for coming. Hopefully people will go check out the Tri Swift conference and uh, get involved in some of the other stuff you got going on. Okay, thank you. Right, we'll wrap it up. We'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.